Back to Acts and to the 13th chapter we turn this morning. Acts chapter 13, we'll be reading the first 12 verses. I've alluded to the fact that it is an interesting, I think, and kind providence that we find ourselves in this particular passage today because uh, we have with us Paul and Crystal Henry and their family who are preparing to go very soon to Thailand to join our team there as missionaries. And this passage, as we will see, is one of the classic texts in Scripture concerning missions, this matter of this ministry of missions that is ours, of bringing and of sending the gospel to all the nations of the earth. Here is the beginning of what is commonly called Paul's first missionary journey. Chapters 13 and 14 relate this extensive Missionary activity conducted by Paul in the company of Barnabas, the first of the famous three missionary journeys, as we've come to call them. Only the first of these, however, could really be described as a journey, if by that term we mean a sort of steady movement from one city to another. In the later two journeys, most of the time, was spent in key cities for long periods of time, a year and a half at least in Corinth, some three years in Ephesus. So if we understand that, especially in the last two journeys, the least amount of time was actually spent journeying, then I think we may be free to call them journeys, if qualifiedly so. Even here, in the first journey, Paul's strategy seems to have been to remain in the same place long enough to see a Christian community established unless and until uh, he was forced to leave. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we pray that your spirit will open it too, that he will work in our hearts, that he will take these words and impress them upon our hearts and our lives, individually, but also corporately as a church together, Father. Conform us by the power of your word more and more to the church that you have called us, that Christ has died and risen to purchase us to be. We ask it in his name. Amen. Acts 13, the first 12 verses. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, there'll be some irony here that he's named Bar-Jesus or son of Jesus. Saul or Paul, as you please, will have another name for him, the son 
of someone else. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, isn't that interesting that uh, Elder Thomas just prayed a few minutes ago that the Lord would make straight the paths for the Henrys as they bring the gospel in Thailand. And, of course, Steve was making reference to the passage in Scripture about, uh, in Isaiah about the straight paths of the Lord, make straight the way of the Lord. And uh, Paul was calling this situation for what it was, making crooked the paths of the Lord. We'll not have a lot more to say about uh, this magician today. We'll come back to him, Lord willing, another time. And now behold, verse 11, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I've made the point to you several times in this series in the book of Acts that Dr. Luke, who penned these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving us here a small sampling of the life of the early church, selections specifically chosen and carefully to convey the priorities by which the church of Jesus Christ must order its life. Here we see the church in her vitality, and here we may measure the life of our own church, of our priorities, our motivations, our actions. This being the case... I found it no small coincidence that while I was studying this passage this week, a letter arrived here at the church from the coordinator of our own Mission to the World, or MTW, our mission-sending agency of our denomination. Dr. Koistra, formerly the president of Covenant Theological Seminary back in the day when Debbie and I were there, now coordinator of MTW, pulled no punches. Today, he writes, I have observed a growing number of churches that have little or no enthusiasm for missions. Missions budgets shrink And no one seems to sound an alarm. Few pastors today preach about missions. And missionaries returning from their field assignments do not receive the encouragement and love they need. 
Why should we even care? He asks. He answers with a reminder of the last words of Jesus before his ascension into heaven. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But then Dr. Koistra adds this chilling thought. A disinterest in missions is a sign of a spiritually sick church. Such a church has lost its first love. They have lost sight of Christ. A vibrant, healthy church is always reaching out to bring others into the family and kingdom of God, whether it is in their local neighborhood or on the other side of the world. And then this. If our church does not obey the call of Christ, it has no future. It will dry up and slowly die. It was, for me, one of the most sobering letters, let alone sermons, that I've ever received from Dr. Koistra. And, of course, it's caused me to stop and think about our life as a church, as a congregation. This body right here in Owensboro, what place, what priority do we give to missions? How is it? How is that priority reflected in our own church budget and in our own actions and in our prayers. And then as if that were not enough, while I was working through all of this a few days ago, my phone rang. It was my former physician uh, who left his practice here in Owensboro several years ago to move his entire family to Africa, to a Muslim village with a few shreds of scripture that had been translated into their language in hand in order to spread the gospel, the word of God there. He has since returned to Owensboro on furlough with a new passion for missions and with a sharp, sharp eye for what the Holy Spirit is doing in churches here in our city along these lines. I confess I was disinclined to answer his call Not because I knew it was he, I didn't. I was delighted when I heard his voice. But I was busy working on the sermon, you see, and I didn't really want to be disturbed. But in God's kind providence, I did answer his call anyway. And within five minutes, we found ourselves in the same room, enjoying wonderful fellowship and rejoicing in an hour of conversation about missions. That's what he came to talk about. That's what he wanted to talk about. It was about missions. He was not, as I first suspected or anticipated, shame on me, he was not coming uh, first to ask for support for his family. He wanted to talk about how things had noticeably changed right here in Owensboro in the time that he's been gone since the time he left and returned. With a litany of examples, he showed me how churches here in Owensboro 
have become excited about and more deeply involved in missions, both international and local. From his point of view, the Holy Spirit has been doing a great work right here in Owensboro, in this area, in that regard. We talked a little about, about what Christ Presbyterian Church does with regard to missions. I was glad to be able to tell him about our mission trips over the last several years and about the missionaries whom we support in Japan and Thailand and England and Mexico and South America and so on. And may I pause right here to give you a word of encouragement as a congregation. You have for years supported missions and missionaries. I've had the privilege of watching as you have expanded your church budget in and toward missions, both locally and abroad. Your deacons support mission works right here in town and are themselves involved in the lives of people who come our way. I know for a fact that many of you individually give to the point of sacrifice toward the advancement of God's kingdom around the world in just this way. I believe and I have seen that there is a heart for missions in this congregation. But when my friend asked me whether we have sent any of our own members of our congregation onto the mission field, well, His visit has challenged me, and I want to pass this challenge right along to you. We've supported missions. We've engaged in missions. We've welcomed missionaries as we will today at our afternoon service, as we will this Wednesday evening at our Wednesday service, for which I hope you will come, uh, both of those. And we really have sent of our own in the sense that missionaries, well, our short-term missionaries, of course, we've sent out missionaries, but also in the sense that missionaries like the Henry family with us today really are our missionaries. We are sending them as a denomination. And we participate in our denominational mission work. But is it time... Has the time come for us to take this a step further? I mean, has the time come for us to send some of our own? I mean, some of our own members as our very own congregational missionaries. We've been organized as a congregation now for a good while, some three and a half decades. The church in Antioch, about which we've just read in Acts 13, was maybe a third of our age, maybe ten years old, when it began sending missionaries abroad. It was first established on good teaching. Look at the stellar gathering of prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, Saul. They had their doctrine straight. They were worshiping God in spirit and truth. 
But it was not enough for them to establish themselves, nor certainly to entrench themselves in Antioch. Not when there were so many people all over the world in need of the gospel. Not when there were people, so many, who had not heard of Jesus. This congregation in Antioch, who were the first to bear the name Christians, knew that what the world needed most of all was for there to be more such Christians. Which was just another way to say that the world needed Christ. Now, As I studied this passage, it occurred to me that there was the human element, certainly at work in Antioch, but also the divine. I thought at first to unravel these two and speak to you this morning first about one and then about the other, the human element of missions and the divine element of missions. But the more I tried, the more I realized that you can't unravel them. These two are too closely and tightly bound together. It would simply be too artificial to talk about the human aspects of missions and the divine Separately, because that's not the way missions works, you see. There are both, of course, there are. But it's not so much that each of these come together and sort of combine themselves, a human contribution and a divine cooperating, as it is the divine working through the human. Missions is God working in his church. Or more specifically, as we've seen here and said in Acts, it is Jesus working by his spirit in and through the church that yields itself over to him to advance his kingdom. That's what missions is. It's Jesus working by his spirit, in and through the church that yields itself over to him to the advancement of his kingdom. Now look how that works in the example before us this morning. First, missions is God unleashing his power through our prayer. That's how it all started, right? In Antioch. The congregation was praying I mean, they were really praying. They were praying passionately. They were praying together. How many times have we not seen that in Acts? And praying with fasting. I hope to return to this matter of fasting and its importance in our lives and our prayer and our prayer life together at another time. But it's worth simply noting for now that they were not just praying They were praying with fasting when the Holy Spirit spoke to them about missions. This is the way that it has pleased God to act over and over and over again. It is is consistent modus operandi to unleash his power to advance his kingdom through prayer. Through the corporate prayer, the prayer together in particular. Now, this is an amazing thing. It really is. God could certainly convert as many people as he likes without a single prayer being offered to him to do it. Right? 
He's sovereign. Sometimes we hear it said, mistakenly so, that God needs missionaries to take the gospel to the lost. Nonsense. God doesn't need us at all for anything at any time. But here's the wonder of it. He's chosen to act through us, through our prayers, through our obedience. God is sovereign, yes. He's chosen whom he will save long before they're saved, long before they're born, before the world was made. That the Bible makes perspicuously clear, even here at the end of this chapter, as we'll see. Yet it's been his good pleasure to work through means. We may all bless the day that a young William Carey freely ignored the advice given him. Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. True enough, God doesn't need our aid, but he's chosen to use us to convert the heathen. And the most fundamental means through which he works is, has been, and will ever be through your prayer. History is replete with examples of this, of mission activity, of the salvation of the people, and the bringing of the tribes and nations into the kingdom of God, all beginning with and built on the bedrock of prayer. In the Haystack meeting, for example, of 1806, some students from William College, uh, Williams College, Massachusetts, who had a concern for the spiritual welfare of their fellow students, met twice a week for prayer. Because they were ridiculed, they met outside the college in the countryside. And one day, five of them got caught in a storm and sought refuge under a haystack. While they waited there, they prayed. And their special focus of prayer was the awakening of foreign missionary interest among the students. Their leader, Samuel Mills, directed the discussion and praying to their own missionary obligation. He said that unless students dedicated their lives to foreign evangelism, the gospel would not be taken to places like Asia. After some discussion, these five students offered their lives to foreign missions, which gave birth in turn to the first student missionary society in America. It was from this haystack prayer meeting that foreign missionary, the foreign missionary movement of the churches of the United States had an initial impulse, urgent prayer arising from a desire for all that God wishes makes us receptive to him and inspires a great leap forward in the church's history. So it was in Antioch, so it remains today. Even this afternoon, we will put our hearts and our voices together for the Henrys 
as they prepare to leave for Thailand. Now, admittedly, we won't be fasting. Actually, we'll be doing quite the opposite, won't we? We'll, we'll be feasting. So this afternoon, we will pr- pray with feasting. <laughs> but that's okay. According to God's own word, God is going to act in answer to our prayers. He himself has told us that it is so. But the effect, here's the thing, the the effect will be not known only by the Henrys. In the Lord's kind providence, prayer has a reflexive effect. In other words, prayer, when we pray, it has an effect on us. Which leads to the next point. Second, engaging in missions on our part means God's passion becoming our passion. In God's word, uh, as we pray and as we consider in God's word what he's calling us to be and to do as a congregation, and as we worship him together, like they did in Antioch, God's passion for missions will more and more become our passion for missions. Sometimes this passage, Acts 13, is referred to as the beginning of the missionary movement. Well, that's not entirely true. God had long been bringing people to himself, even from outside Israel. Even Jesus' genealogies, the lists of Jesus' ancestors, includes, as you know, Gentiles interspersed, not just Jews, but Gentiles, that is, non-Jews as well. From the very call that God issued to Abraham centuries before Jesus' birth, God made it clear that his intention, was his concern was not simply for Abraham's physical descendants. Through you, he said to Abraham, and through his descendants, he would bless all the nations of the earth. And for this very reason, God sent his son into the world. As the famous missionary David Livingston said, God had only one son, and he was a missionary. God's heart has always been passionate for missions, for the salvation of the lost. So when we gain a passion for missions, that means that God's passion is becoming our passion. And that passion comes through prayer. So it was in Antioch, so it is in our own church, and in Owensboro as we do the same. Third, and finally, missions is God's triumph through our testimony. God's triumph through our testimony. Did you notice how often the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the passage we read? And how often we've heard about him and spoken of him in this worship service along the same lines. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. From beginning to end, 
The primary mover and shaker was the Holy Spirit. He it was who chose the missionaries. He who equipped the missionaries. He who empowered the missionaries. He who opened the heart of Sergius Paulus to receive what the missionaries testified to him, the teaching of the Lord. When this intelligent ruler on the island of Cyprus believed it was a great triumph for the gospel, the Holy Spirit subdued his heart. But the way he did it was through the testimony of these missionaries. That's how the Spirit did it. God triumphed through their testimony. Someone had to be there to testify. Someone had to be there to tell them, tell him. In fact, we may go so far as to say this and still be within the bounds of biblical orthodoxy. We could say that Saul and Barnabas, had Saul and Barnabas resisted the Holy Spirit, had the church at Antioch not prayed or not been willing to release the best of their best abroad as missionaries, Sergius Paulus would never have believed, would not have been converted. And how different the history of the Christian church would read to this day. Well, here we are, a congregation in Owensboro, Kentucky. We're steeped in our doctrines. We're a worshiping congregation who has given a whole lot of thought to what we do in our worship and why. We are, I dare say, a well-established church. And we support missionaries. We pray for missionaries. We receive missionaries. But the time is ripe for us to take this whole thing a step further, isn't it? We need to send our own to. Every one of us needs to ask ourselves right now, Is the Lord calling me as a missionary to go? I know I've told you a hundred times, if I've told you once, as you leave this place, all of you, you leave as missionaries. All of us. We must all bring the gospel, even to our neighbors right here in Owensboro, or Rockport, or wherever you live, even the far-out boondocks like Utica. And I've reminded you not a few times that the Lord has brought the nations to us here in Owensboro. But none of that means that we should not also be sending our own to the nations. We've been a church three times longer than the church had been established in Antioch. The time has come, dear flock, for us to send 
our own. So who shall it be? God asked another person that question in Scripture, you might remember. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? It's time for you to answer if God is calling you. Here am I. Send me. Amen.